I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello! Hey guys, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And welcome to episode 51 of A Tap on the Wrist. 51? Wow. Last week was our Q&A episode, our Get to Know Us episode. Yes. We hope you enjoyed that. Yes. If you haven't listened, you really should because we're ridiculous. It was really fun. It was fun. (laughs) And just like, there are times when I was editing it and I was just laughing all over again (laughs) with how, like, it was just... At least we think we're funny. Yeah. (laughs) I think our we got like some texts. People said it was funny. Yes, um, but definitely check that out. Uh, get to know kind of our backstory um, and some of our favorite, favorite drinks. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it it was it was a lot of fun to record, and it was different. You know, it was just we're so used to telling you know murder. Crime murdering, mobs murdering each other over the past, you know, however long we've been doing this season, that it it was nice to have like a light, refreshing episode. Yeah. Just like a a chit chat. Yes. Um, We also just had Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving? Um, I mean, it was good. It was different this year because Mm -hmm. of pandemic. Yep. But um, I ate all my favorite Thanksgiving foods. Mm -hmm. Way too many of them. Yep. But uh, no regrets. How about you? Did you make a signature cocktail before we go to mine? I did, as always. Um, I made an apple cider sangria. Ooh, is it delicious? It was very booze heavy. (laughs) (laughs) You were a little heavy handed. (laughs) Well, so you cut up all this fresh fruit, so like pears and apples and a lemon. Mm -hmm. And then you put in apple brandy. Okay apple cider Uh and whiskey and you let all that marinate for a day and then when you serve it you like put like fill the glass like two-thirds of the way and then you top it off with some wine oh some more alcohol (laughs) so it was it was very good and very fall like i put a cinnamon stick in but it was um it was very boozy very cool though. I did not have a signature cocktail. We did drink wine though. Nice. As usual. I was like, no Um, it was just my parents and I, because again, you know, with Corona, we had to keep things small. Um, and my parents are in are in my bubble, so I knew I'd, we'd, be, we'd be safe together. Well, um, it's different because you guys have been traveling for Thanksgiving the past couple years. Yeah. So usually my parents and I will go to DC. Uh, we had a favorite restaurant that we found out closed during the pandemic, which is so sad. Um, it was like on top of the Doubletree Hotel uh, in Pentagon City, and it it was like a rotating bar. Like it rotated, so you got views of DC all like all the way around. 
and uh, it rotated very slowly. It did not make you seasick or anything like that. Um, but the food was so good, and we found out that it closed due to the pandemic. Like permanently? Permanently closed. Dick. So sad. Um, but yeah, so we usually travel out of New York during Thanksgiving, so this was our first time like in New York and making a full Thanksgiving meal because we've been going to restaurants for Thanksgiving for the past couple years. Uh, so it was kind of fun for like my mom and I to like make a full Thanksgiving meal. Um, and of course, like you said, I had all of our, our favorites stuffing. I feel like we talked about this through text message, <laughs> but like, why don't we normalize Thanksgiving foods year round? I, that is exactly my feeling. <laughs> I did it cause I'm, I'm one of the people who, I really just like canned cranberry sauce. Yeah. Jellied, cheap cranberry sauce. I don't know why, it's what I grew up with. It is my preference for cranberry sauce. Mm -hmm. Cranberry elitist. Go eat your cranberry somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, and like, I love it. And it, it just adds to the Thanksgiving plate of savory foods, like a touch of sweetness. Yeah. I do not buy a can of cranberry sauce any other time of year. It's there mm. year round. I don't know why I don't buy it. I know. Same with stuffing. I mean, you could buy stuff to make stuffing or like just the box of stuffing. Yeah. Um, and I have like in the past once in a while been like, fuck, I'm just buying this bag of stovetop and making it. But it always feels weird. It feels wrong. Yeah. It's like once a year I'll buy stovetop and do like yeah. a roast chicken and stovetop because you're just craving yeah. that comfort you get on Thanksgiving. But why do we as Americans only have this giant comforting meal once a year? I feel like it should be monthly. <laughs> once a month <laughs> we have a Thanksgiving yeah. meal. Um, I know. Thanksgiving food is so good. And like, though part of me wonders, like, do I love stuffing and like cranberry sauce and stuff like that so much because I have it so rarely? Like if I had it monthly, would I like it as much? I wonder. I feel like, I mean, I love mashed potatoes. <laughs> You're right, I have mashed potatoes all the time. Not all the time, every, every year I have mashed potatoes. It's um, all she eats. <laughs> but yeah, ugh. I get I get the the turkey thing because yeah. roasting a turkey takes a, like a lot of prep and a lot of time. So I get that being special, but like something as simple as like green bean casserole or stuffing or opening a can of cranberry <laughs> sauce. <laughs> Why is it once a year? I know we got to normalize that. I mean, eat cranberry there, sauce year round. Is there a petition? Can we, <laughs> can we like let's <laughs> let's just start it? Okay. <laughs> Uh, oh man, great times. All right, so besides Thanksgiving and our Q&A episode, we're back in it. Yes, we're With talking rivals. Part two. So you, if you listen to our part one episode, it was before our Q&A episode. We took a little break in between the two-parter. To celebrate 50. To celebrate 50. I, I actually remember this conversation. I was like, Lord, do you realize that our 50th episode is going to be rivals part two? And <laughs> then during and we like kind of mentioned it and then during our uh intro i think you pitched me the q a like we didn't even bring it up yeah. during our combo um but yeah we, we decided we needed 50 to be special couldn't just be another episode no. a part two of a two-parter even though this episode is great yes um and pay attention because the people we talk about in this episode are gonna 
come back. Yes. I, I promise you. Yes. As so many things have. I feel like we keep being like, and like we mentioned before. <laughs> I, I texted Vanessa yesterday. I was writing a, a future episode and I was like, I can't remember what we've said on microphone and what we've discussed off microphone at this point or yeah. what we've like, we've got like a document going where we're like, we need to revisit this. We need to revisit. And I'm like, it all gets, we're now, we're so deep into it and like all mm -hmm. the things we've read, I sometimes forget what we've said on mic. Right. Because the way we decided to format the season is just like, we're not telling the story straight through. We're telling like bits of the story. So yeah, it's not, I mean, it is linear, yeah. but we've taken some branches. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but today we have two more great rivals to talk about, interesting rivals to talk about. Uh, or al allies, I guess, of the North Side, maybe. I don't, I guess, yeah, yeah allies of the North Side. Yeah. Rivals um, to our friend Capone and Torrio. Yeah, I think actually on our call yesterday, Laura was like, this was in uh, the Alliances of the North Side Gang, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, it was in the Rivals of the South Side Gang, of the Chicago Up. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's the same thing. <laughs> so, I mean, welcome to part two. If you have not listened to part one, pause this. Go back to episode 49. Yes. Listen, because those are going to be um, other big name players. Um, and then you're going to want to come back to episode 51. Right. Oh, and I guess it's worth mentioning that we did record this initially as one episode. So there might be times within these rivals that we're telling now that we say like earlier when we, you know, and what we mean is part one because we recorded them back to back. And then realized it'd be a really long episode. Yes, <laughs> and then realized it'd be way too long. So we hope you enjoy. The next rivals I'm going to discuss are the Aiello brothers. Uh, I somehow ended up with both brother-related oh, yeah, gangs. I did, I did the Jenna brothers as the allies. Um, so the Aiello brothers started out as allies to Capone, um, but they ended up not so much. So... The leader of the brothers seems to have been Giuseppe Aiello, who we're going to call Joe. That's what he was known as when he moved to America. Uh, he was born in, 19, in, 19, in 1890 in Sicily. I almost said 1990. <laughs> He's 30. <laughs> Into a really big family. So he was either one of seven or ten brothers, depending on different sources. <laughs> But according to my Al Capone Museum, the Aiello brothers consisted of Joseph, Dominic, Andrew, Salvatore, Samuel, Anthony, and Carl, Carlo Jr. Uh, so that would be seven. So I'm going to go with seven. Okay. Uh, most of the Aiello family moved to the United States in the early 1900s, dividing between Utica, New York, and Chicago. Joe first goes to New York before deciding to go to Chicago, um, but... Joe's father dies during this time, and when he arrives into Chicago, his brother Andrew is the one who welcomed him into the city. So, as is the case, case of many gangsters, like as we touched on, Joe does at first start with some legitimate work. So he works at a grocery importing company, which was known to import olive oil, cheese, and sugar. And it was ultimately that connection to sugar that led him into gang life in Chicago because items like sugar and grapes were important to the distilling process. Right. So as a grocer, he could easily purchase large quantities of these items 
without arousing suspicion from the police. He's like, I'm just trying to stock my store with some sugar. But then he would pass it on to gangs who would then use it to distill alcohol. So smart. I know. So Joe used this position to become deeply involved in the bootlegging industry. Um, and he and his brothers made a ton of money doing this. They ended up using some of that money to open up a wholesale bakery, which, <laughs> <laughs> and all that sugar, I guess. <laughs> and <But>, yeast. <laughs> yeah. uh, they specialized in wedding cakes and Italian breads. Uh, and that, So it's like a legitimate bakery. Yeah, it was a real bakery, and it was located on 473 West Division Street. He also had part ownership in a candy store, that was near Oak Street and Cleveland Avenue, which was then known as Milton Street. Uh, and that is right around Death Corner, which we talked about oh. a few episodes back. Uh, but like so pure of him, he owned a candy store and a bakery. Yeah, that seems like a nice gig. Yeah, but he just, you know, he couldn't help himself. He just wanted to be in crime too. So at one point, Joe enters into a partnership with a fellow countryman and grocer named Antonio Lombardo. So the two of them open another import business on Randolph Street, uh, and they purchase some property on the west side of Kinsey and Halstead and try to like expand their operation even larger. The ALO brothers happened to come into the picture after the Jenna brothers were decimated. So it was like one brother gang replaced another brother gang. <laughs> um, and if you remember in our last episode, I had noted that once Bloody Angelo was killed, Capone installed one of his men as president of the Union Siciliana, uh, and that man was Tony Lombardo, the same guy that I just mentioned Joe partnered up mm. with. So as a refresher for those like, that are joining in on this episode or just don't remember, uh, the Union Siciliana was the primary Italian organization in Chicago. It was set up to help any Sicilian newcomers to the city um, and to America in general. However, they of course eventually ended up becoming involved in the crime in Chicago, uh, and they helped to organize the massive ne network of home distilleries that supplied the low quality liquor that the that Capone in the outfit eventually sold. You'll remember the Jenna brothers were, took a big part in that in setting up those distilleries, home distilleries. Uh, they also became involved with extortion and the black hand. Um, and the reason that Capone had to install someone as the head of the Union Siciliana instead of becoming the head of it himself is because he, of course, was not Sicilian. Uh, but having his man in charge of it, of the Union, would allow him to receive certain favors and his business dealings would become more profitable because they had such big control over the Italian population in Chicago. So the business that Joe and Lombardo entered into was actually started with a loan from Capone. He lent them $100,000 to open up their business. And Joe was the president of that business and Lombardo was the vice president. And together with Lombardo and Capone, Joe Aiello ruled Chicago's illegal alcohol train in early 1926. And that could have been well and great for him but Joe got greedy. <laughs> he wanted more, and this led to quarreling with Lombardo and eventually the breakup of their business. And it was not an amicable breakup. Uh, because, of course, this episode is about rivals. So Joe began to hire killers to go after both Lombardo and Capone. Because, why not? That seems smart. Uh, he was offering up to $50,000 for each 
to be killed and even at certain points hired cooks to try and poison their food. Uh, he was jealous of Lombardo's position as the head of the Union Siciliana and thought that Capone as a non-Sicilian was untrustworthy and undeserving of his wealth. Wow. Uh, of course, all these plots were unsu unsuccessful because it's Capone. And Capone and his associates retaliated by gunning down Aiello's bakery with his brothers. It was noted that over 200 bullets ended up lodged in the roof floor and walls of the bakery. Joe was in the bakery with his brothers Dominic and Tony, along with two employees, and Tony was shot in the neck, but survived, and another employee was shot in the side, but Joe was fine. So these attacks back and forth again continue. Uh, at one point, police discover a machine gun nest across the street from Lombard Lombardo's home, uh, which eventually causes Lombardo to move to Cicero and another machine gun nest across the street from our friend Hinky Dink's cigar shop on South Clark Street, which was a common meeting place between Capone and Lombardo. So he was, he was trying to gun him down with some machine guns. It's crazy. Didn't learn after his bakery was shot up. Uh, in 1927, after several of these attempts, Joe was held in police custody. Outside the station, some of Capone's men began taunting police and waving their guns around because they wanted to be arrested and put in the same cell as Joe. Oh my goodness. Yes. You know, they just wanted to have a chat. <laughs> uh, There's got to be a name for it. <laughs> it's probably just called like a prison chit chat or something, but it really means. <sighs> um, however, unfortunately for them, there was a police officer there that was Sicilian and he overheard the conversation that took place between Joe and Capone's man, men. Uh, Joe was begging them to think of his wife and children uh, and told them that he would sell his businesses and his homes and he would leave in 15 days for good from Chicago. But Capone's men responded by saying, you started this, you dirty rat. <laughs> we're gonna finish it. You're as good as dead. Uh, and because the officer overheard them, it was prevented and Joe leaves the station under police protection. Lucky. Damn that officer. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, however, it doesn't end there. Uh, Joe does not leave Chicago. Um, <laughs> he, in fact, sends some of his brothers and nephews to St. Louis in an attempt to build a rival organization to the Union Siciliana that he could eventually bring to Chicago. So these attempts to consolidate power led to dozens of murder and that included the death of two of his brothers. So his power hungriness was just killing all his family. So because he was so power hungry, he decided that his best course of action was to create what was called an unholy alliance with George Bugs Moran and the Northside Gang. So as a former Capone associate, he decided to go over to Capone's biggest enemy, Bugs Moran seems like a weird choice yeah like so, that's gonna put you even further in the crosshairs <laughs> um so the reason that this kind of worked out is because joe of course wanted to take control of the union and bugs wanted to be able to rule the north side with the backing of the union because he didn't have that italian backing because of course he was part of a mostly irish gang um and in order to do that, they needed to get rid of Lombardo. So Joe tries to get help from a good friend of his, Frankie Yale, who, 
used to be Capone's friend, so don't know what happened there. Maybe we'll find out one day. I don't actually know. <laughs> uh, but Frank Frankie was apparently involved in union dealings around the country, which seems odd since it was a Chicago organization and he was from New York, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, but Yale ended up actually being killed on July 1st of 1928 by Capone Associates. Uh, he was apparently stealing Capone's booze shipments and backed his rivals in burning and attacking Capone's dog tracks. Uh, that could be why they're not friends anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems like like something happened that uh, changed Frankie's mind about Capone. So the plan had to continue on without the help of Yale. And on September 7th of 1928, Tony Lombardo and two of his bodyguards were shot while walking down a crowded street in Madison and Dearborn. So, like, there were tons of people around, but they still got shot and killed. Huh. Uh, he and one of his bodyguards were killed. One of them survived. Um, it's suspected that the killers were Moran, Moran's hitmen, who I had talked about a little bit in the last episode or two episodes ago, the Gusenberg brothers. Uh, along with James Clark. Uh, they also suspected it could be killers from New York in revenge for Yale's death. Sadly for Joe, his plots didn't quite pan out, um, and a man named Pasqualino Lelordo was chosen as Lombardo's replacement as the head of the union. Uh, so the Aiello Brothers Bakery, again, is raked by bullets by Capone's gunmen, using machine guns. Yeah, I just, you would think if you were gonna go through all this trouble, you'd make sure that you were chosen I as know. the next president. I know, but he's not, and uh, you know, Capone was pissed that he killed Lombardo, so his bakery well, got shot up again. I mean, yes, and that makes, <laughs> that makes sense. Like, if you're gonna go and you're gonna piss off Capone, and you're gonna go through all this to have Lombardo killed, you'd think you would've had a plan in motion to make sure yeah. you were named the next head of the, Union. Yeah. Like, I, come on, Joe. I don't, I don't know. Um, he, he did not think, he did not think it through. No. Uh, but he always wanted the power. So after his bakery shot up again, he lets it known, be known to Lelordo that he wants peace. So he arranges to meet with Lelordo. Uh, which you would think he wouldn't do after Joe had killed the previous president. Yeah. Right, is he president? Yeah, president, yeah. Um, but he surprisingly agreed, uh, and people think that was either because he wanted to be responsible for brokering a peace deal, like he wanted to be the one to be like, look what I did, or more likely because he was running a distillery in the north side and he wanted, like, to make buddy-buddy with Moran so that he didn't, you know, take over his distillery. Um, but that was a mistake because, unsurprisingly, on January 8th of 1929, during the supposed meeting, shots were fi fired and Lelordo falls to the ground dead. Oh. Yes. Uh, so the couple's maid insisted that the men who came were not Italian, so it's once again suspected that the Gusenberg brothers and James Clark were involved because they were not Italian. Uh, the idea was basically, or the idea people had, is that Joe had said, like, oh, yeah, they're just coming ahead of me. Just let them in. I'll be there later. We're going to settle everything. 
And I would have been like, no, you sketchy <laughs> mother effer. Yes. Like, because it was noted that he was having like a drink with them. Like he wasn't, it wasn't like he opened his door and they shot him. Like they had let him, his wife actually had let them in. They were like toasting and having a drink and then they killed him. Wow. Yeah. Rough times. Yeah. Um, so then I need to skip over some stuff because events are happening on, you know, that involve Valentine's Day and can't talk <laughs> about them yet. But after all of that happens, Joe flees Chicago, fearing for his life. Uh, but as has been shown, he is very power hungry. So he decides to go back to Chicago. Uh, and in October, tw- on October 23rd, 1930, he is finally shot and killed uh, by Capone Associates um, because he's stupid, <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> um, and while we've been talking a lot about, like, big gangster funerals, his was not that, unsurprisingly. Oh. Um, Joe was lacking in gangster attendance, including his own brothers and family members who at this point were like, no, you've done too much shit. And, like, they didn't want the backlash that he was getting. Right. That makes sense. So, uh, he was buried. His wife was there. And it was a small, a small funeral. He was at first buried at Mount Carmel. And then they moved his body, I think, eventually to New York. But that's, uh, the story of Joe Aiello. And, uh, my sources for that were, again, the Mayal Capone Museum and also the Chicago Crime Scenes Project blog. Okay, my next rival gang is significantly less violent than the gang I spoke about before, the uh, Saltese McErlane gang. Um, A non-violent gang? Yeah, but they have their own claims to fame. I'm going to get there. Okay. Okay, so this is the GKW gang, or the Guilfoyle, Kolb, and Wing gang, And these three guys had a variety of skills when it came to criminal enterprises. Hold on. I think I asked you this already. (laughs) Like, I feel like I've actually asked you this like five times while we've discussed this gang. Guilfoyle is somebody I've mentioned before, right? Marty Guilfoyle? Is he? Yeah, he's the one that shot Gentleman, right? Oh, yeah. I'm going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So... To be honest, if any one of these guys were standalone, they'd be kind of like small potatoes, not anything big. Yeah. But together, they made a pretty decent criminal organization. Okay. Um, and I, there's, to be honest, not a lot of information uh, um, on these three men together. And they seem to run a gang in like the early 1920s, and then it actually transforms into something else. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there, but mm-hmm. the GKW gang is noted as being a rival to Capone. So Marty Guilfoyle um, ran a cigar store. Right. And it fronted as a gambling emporium. Mm -hmm. And this is the location where Peter Gentleman was shot and killed. And Guilfoyle is the one who shot and killed him. Yes. Um, But, like, there's not a lot about his early life. Like, I couldn't find... Like, anything about his childhood, where he started, where he's from. He does not have a people source page. Like, if you don't have a people source page, there's, like, not going to be a lot about you. Um, But once Prohibition kicks in, he runs a slew of bedding dens in the north side, and he becomes business partners with Kolb and Wing. 
So Matt Kolb was another gambler from the north side of Chicago, uh, but his interests are much more entwined with the bootlegging business once Prohibition goes into effect. Mm-hmm. So Guilfoyle runs the gambling dens. Okay. Kolb runs the bootlegging side of it, and it's this part of the organization. Um, they did have their own brewing system happening, but they really made most of their money by running a million-dollar pipeline between Gilt Edge Brewery, which is located in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and they would bring that beer to the streets of Chicago. Okay. Um, and they used trains to transport their beer from Massachusetts to Chicago, and their transports of all of this bootlegged beer were often overlooked by police because of the third member of the trio. Albert was one of Chicago's top cops. Uh, Oh, shit. He was a (laughs) lieutenant detective for the Chicago PD. Uh Uh-huh. And he held this position during his entire reign of the GKW gang. And he was caught one time being involved in the smuggling of bootlegged um, beer and he was given a 30-day suspension from the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was it. So it just goes to show you, like, how corrupt the Chicago PD was at this time. That, like, I mean, we've mentioned it all the time. Undercover cops being involved. This guy ran this organization. And yeah. The Chicago PD was so corrupt. Um, but it's here that I have to mention a fourth guy named Roger Tui. Okay. Um, In some sources, he's listed as having his own gang and bootlegging empire, but in the majority of the research that I found, he actually was partners with Matt Kolb, who is the K from GKW. Right. Um, And so it seems like GKW was a relatively small gang, somewhat successful, because they are, you know, they're mentioned... In books, they're going to be on that map. If you check out Instagram, you can see like where they had their their organization. But there's way more information on Kolb once he becomes partners with Roger Tui, which is more in like the mid 1920s. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about Tui because he's fascinating. Okay. <laughs> like fascinating. So. Tui is born and raised in Chicago, and he grew up with very strict religious parents who, um, like, they had one plan for him. His path was to be successful, to stay educated, and, like, that was what he was going to do. And he was good at it. He was relatively smart. It was noted that he graduated junior high as valedictorian of his class, Mm -hmm. and at 13... He begins working full-time as a telegrapher for Western Union. Okay. At 13. Get um, it, getting it getting started early. Yeah. And he was able to do this job as telegrapher because he had, like, a hobby as a kid. Um, of Like, he was really into electronics, and he had, like, a ham radio that his parents had bought him. And he would take it apart and put it back together. And take it apart and put it back together. And he taught himself Morse code by using the radio. And so he could get this job as a telegrapher with Western Union because he knew how to work all the equipment and he could understand Morse code. So he was super smart. He's very, very smart. Yeah. So 
I'm going to continue down his path. Okay. Um, <laughs> then, during World War One, Tui enlists in the Navy. Uh, however, he never actually sees combat. Instead, because of his intelligence, the Navy sends him to Harvard to be a professor of Morse code for naval officers. Oh my god. This, yeah. this guy sounds like he could have had an amazing life. I don't know why he gets involved with the gangs. Yes. Um, and and that's like what it is. Like he he and so like that's kind of a, a claim he uses for the rest of his life. It's like I was a professor at Harvard. As he was. You would. <laughs> um, and so I just think that that's super interesting. So when World War One ends, he leaves Boston and he moves to Oklahoma where, you know, it's just a quieter lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts brewing his own corn whiskey, because that's what you do in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, and somehow, between his ability to brew somewhat decent corn whiskey and his vast intelligence, he is able to bribe people to give him jobs. Okay. Um, and specifically... He gets a job as a petroleum engineer in Oklahoma. And it's at this job where he learns, like, all these ridiculous skills on engineering. And he makes a crap ton of money. Um, And so by the year 1922, he leaves Oklahoma and he returns to Chicago, a very, very wealthy man with a very extensive resume. Uh, and he becomes a car salesman. Oh. However, I have to note, because I kind of had that same reaction, car salesman of the day, it was one of the best jobs you got. Cars were like the highest commodity, right? They were somewhat new. They were quite luxurious. So it was noted he was making um, in dollars today, like, $700,000 a year being a car salesman. Like, he was a very wealthy man. Because he was smart and knowledgeable and could Mm -hmm. convince people to do things. Um, Also, nothing against car salesmen. Sorry for having that reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He, when he returns to Chicago, he actually marries his longtime love, who he had met way back when he was 13 working at Western Union. So cute. And uh, that's where his story ends. What? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got so it. <laughs> um, Tui uses his wealth and he decides that instead of selling cars, he's going to create a trucking firm. So okay. he founds a trucking firm that's going to run different supplies across the country. And he also at this time meets a man named Matt Kolb who he had sold a car to. Okay. So this is how the two meet as car salesman and buyer, but they form a friendship and Kolb realizes Tui has quite a lot of money and a lot of intelligence. Kolb has this like brewery background mm-hmm. and that bootlegging is really making a lot of money in Chicago. Maybe they should Team join up. forces and they do. So, so the K leaves. K leaves JKW, yes. and they become like Tui Kolb. Yeah. So Tui and Kolb together buy ten illegal beer and liquor breweries and distilleries throughout Chicago, 
They then... How many breweries and distilleries were in Chicago? Like, I feel like everyone owned several. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, there's no mention to how big they are. They could That's have been true. small. But they buy 10. Um, they also build a wooden barrel manufacturing plant in Schiller Park. And then, because Tui owned this trucking business, he purchases oil trucks... And, like, no one is any wiser. Okay. So now they own breweries. They own the barrel manufacturing company to hide the beer in. And they own these trucks that they can transport vast quantities of illegal alcohol in. So they are creating quite the empire. Yes. And I just have to show you these trucks. So he would buy an oil truck. Uh-huh. And we'll, we'll post this picture online, but I'm going to show Vanessa as well. And then he would paint them to look like Texaco vehicles so that no one knew they were delivering alcohol. Everyone thought it was like gas. Clever. So the picture that I found tui. is it's painted like a shell truck, but this is what it would have looked like. So it's like an oh, old school yeah. truck, but it's got this like cylinder. So the, the cab of the truck looks like the cab that you would expect of a 1920s era truck. But then the back is like a cylinder, mm -hmm. but it's short. Like, it's not exactly what we would think of, like, a trucking truck today. Right. Um, it still only runs on, like, four wheels, not an eight-wheeler. Right. Um, and But that's how they transported their alcohol. So instead of gas being in that cylinder, it would be full of alcohol. Right, but it would throw off people who were trying to, like... You know, the, we've talked about it before, like, mm -hmm. people taking over delivery trucks, like, yeah. hijacking trucks. Yeah. People thought it was gas, so they wouldn't hijack this truck because they didn't know it was So alcohol. clever. Yes. Um, and they also, they would hire off-duty police officers to drive the trucks because then police officers were less likely to pull over a fellow officer. And uh, Cole had that that insight to the well yeah so what had officers. the connection yeah. um through his and former... knew which ones would be willing to correct and then also unlike many other bootleggers Tui and Kolb consulted chemists to create their beer so not mm. only were they creating lots of beer they were creating very high quality beer which is how they catch the attention of Capone Mm -hmm. um, Capone always wanted the best of the best. That's what he's known for. Yeah. High end of everything. So, um, they, Capone, the Chicago outfit was buying lots of beer from Tui and Kolb during Prohibition. Um, they also were known for selling bootleg alcohol to like multiple other gangs or mm -hmm. just individuals who ran nightclubs. It said over 200 bars, nightclubs, and roadhouses throughout West and Northwest Chicago were using the Tui Cold beer. Okay. Um, they would sell 18,000 bottles of beer a week. And during the summer, they could sell up to 1,000 barrels of beer. And, like, each barrel would be a profit of $50 then or $743 today. So, and That's they were selling... A thousand barrels a week. A good amount of money. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, they were doing a lot of business, 
but they were still a really small organization. Um, only had a few employees, kept everything pretty small. And so Capone reaches out. He wants them to join the Chicago outfit officially, become like sole beer producers for the Chicago outfit. But they didn't really want to do that because they had all these other connections and their their business plan was working as right. was. Like, and they would have had to cut Capone in. Yeah, sure. and they, they, they were just like, no, you can buy our goods and sell it or yeah. distribute it, but like we want to stay as is. Right. Capone doesn't like when people tell him no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so... It's noted there are multiple times, but there's four different occasions where Capone sends his henchmen to intimidate Tui and Kolb, um, trying to get them to... He not only wanted to partner with them and have sole ownership of their beer, he also wanted to expand his brothels and gambling dens into their territory. Okay. And they just... That wasn't the game they were in. Mm -hmm. Like, they were, like, beer distributors... They weren't violent. Like, they're, like, just business guys. Pretty yeah. normal. And so, like, they kept turning Capone down. And then Capone would send more henchmen to intimidate them. And they were like, not our game. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, and they, they did, however, because Capone was getting, like, more aggressive, they actually went out and hired people to, like, sit in their, like, headquarters and pretend to be their gang with weapons and stuff. Like, they didn't... They, they didn't have a real gang? No, they were, they like, a small... Hired. They were more like a brewery <laughs> than a gang. And so they would, like, hire intimidators so that, like, they seemed tougher than they were. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, so they... Uh, hold on. I lost my hat. So it's... This is really how the rivalry between Capone and Tui and starts. Because, you know... Capone wants what he wants. Tui was not giving it to him. And they just couldn't come to an agreement. Mm -hmm. Or really, Tui wasn't going to bend over. Mm -hmm. um, and th this is where it goes. It just starts this series of vengeful acts between these two groups. One organization would ask for a meeting with the other, only to tip off police and bring on a raid. Okay. And then there would be revenge taken. Yeah. So here is one example of one of these acts. On March 4th of 1931, so we're like jumping way ahead, but it, just so you get a, the picture of like what these gangs were doing to each other. A Chicago Outfit uh, member whose last name is Summers visited Tui and once again proposed bringing brothels, gambling dens, and dance halls to the northwest suburb. Tui not interested in this, um, bribed two of his men to take this outfit guy out drinking. He's like, oh, you know, take him out drinking, try and talk him out of it. Um, and they end up going to Ralph Capone's Cotton Club. So this would be Al Capone's brother. Mm -hmm. uh, it's located in Cicero. And they sit down and they're drinking. And as the night progresses... Summers, who was a the Capone associate. associate, gets urged to pick a fight with Ralph Capone. He doesn't know who Ralph Capone is. He's like a lower level Chicago outfitter. And so 
Al Capone looks almost exactly like Al Capone. Yeah, if you like. I don't know. And so they don't bottles. He, he doesn't realize who he is. So he like kind of gets up and starts like this fight with Ralph Capone, and two undercover law enforcement officers like stand up to mm-hmm. like defend Ralph Capone, and in the fight mm-hmm. that ensues, because Chewie's men then get involved as well the two law enforcement officers actually get disarmed and their weapons are taken and Tui's men like grab the guns and leave. And like, there's no record of like that night ending in like no one dying, no one, anything, but like these guns are stolen from the cotton club. Okay. So the next day, Ralph Capone really like, these are federal officers' guns that have been stolen. Mm-hmm. And, like, these officers are like, we need our weapons. Like, yeah. we're undercover cop. We need these weapons back. So, Ralph Capone reaches out to Tui and is like, hey, no hard feelings for that shit you pulled last night, but I need my guns back. Yeah. And Tui's like, what guns? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Maybe you should talk to your friend Summers. But he didn't know Ralph Capone had had Summers killed for, like, stepping up to him. Yeah. And so Summers was dead. And, like, the the guns, like, Tui had the guns, but was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Summers has the guns. Mm -hmm. And so Ralph Capone was kind of left with, like, nothing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so what happens, federal officers are forced to raid the Cotton Club because they have to do something because their guns have been stolen. And um, so they raid the Cotton Club a week later on March 12th, and then again the very next day on March 13th, looking for the guns, and they can't find them, and they end up shutting down the Cotton Club because these guns have been stolen. Uh, So, like, that's just one example of, like, the petty, like, games they played with each other between the Chicago Outfit and the TUI organization. But, like, again, I feel like kind of shows how smart too was because like just stealing those like I wouldn't think of that I know and no one died I mean Summers was killed but right. at Ralph Capone's orders right so it, it's just crazy so it's story after story of small acts of revenge between these two organizations mm-hmm. some of them do result in deaths um, of course but it really comes to a head when William Hale, Big Bill, mm-hmm. loses um, the mayorship and a new mayor is put into place in Chicago in 1931. And he vows he's going to clean up Chicago. And his first plan is that he wants to get organizations that were nonviolent, such as Tui's, to take over the violent organizations because he thinks, the mayor, that if he can at least get rid of the violence, then, like, the bootlegging's not so bad. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. whatever, everyone's doing that. But, like, we can't have Tommy guns on the streets. Right. So he's, like, he, he like, seeks out Roger, too, and he's, like, I got a plan for you. Let's go after the outfit. And Tui is not really sure. Like, and so Tui does form a partnership with the mayor, and a lot of things happen. <laughs> but, uh... Dot, dot, dot. But dot, dot, dot. Um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. And I don't want to give all this information because we are going to talk about all of these years 
and we are going to talk about, you know, what happens with the Chicago outfit, and I don't want to spoil it mm -hmm. all this week. Um, but let's let's just say Capone isn't going to like this plan very much. I wouldn't think so. I don't think he's just going to be like, you know what, Mayor? You win. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're gonna stop the Tui Kolb gang story there mm -hmm. because there is more and. I like made a note like we're gonna come back to this story yeah. in a later episode, but um, I I just can't give it away yet. Yeah, that's that's just how it works. Here. We're leaving on a cliffhanger. Yes. Um. Oh, and I did just want to know because we referenced it at the top, the um, Guilfoyle gentleman story. That full story. If you haven't listened to all the episodes, which you should, you should go back and listen to them all. But it happens when I tell the story of the four deuces, which will be two or three episodes before this one. Okay. Wonderful. Yes. Um, and my my sources, this week was uh, a little bananas for me. Uh, so my sources were mainly the Al Capone Beer Wars book written by John Binder, which we've used all season long. And it is a wealth of information yes it truly is um so thank you john j binder yes um and the people source the people source wow had so much information and i don't like solely relying on them a lot of times i like to click through to their sources and check yes, them out i do that too but i um you know this week i just I couldn't do it i just the people sources I didn't use the people source once. I didn't even look at the people source. You know what? <laughs> Sue me. And I like, I just Googled a few minutes ago because I want, uh, when I was looking to see what the Union Siciliana, well, it is Siciliana. And uh, Joe Aiello does have a Wikipedia page and I didn't even know until this moment. <laughs> I, you know, I don't love using the people source. No, sometimes they have really good concise information, and like you said, a lot of times I'll go in and look at their references, and I'll click through to their references, and can get a lot of information that way too. Yeah, but you know, it is what and it is. And sometimes you just need to use them. I would say the majority of my information came from the book, but it is like intertwined. Sometimes they, like, I'll find something on Wikipedia that has like it's like this crazy fact. And I'm like, this is so interesting, and I hope it's true. Yeah. And if it's not, you know, you're here for the ride. <laughs> so. And that wraps up our two-parter rivals. So many rivals. So many. And there's so many we probably didn't even talk about oh because goodness. there are just so many tiny gangs, too, that we don't have a lot of information about. Yeah. Like, a lot of these gangs had, like, their small branches and feeder gangs. Right. And so it just, it was so large gang life in Chicago at the time. Yeah. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. But next week we're actually going to start taking a look at the beer wars themselves. Yes. That's exciting. I know. Getting into that back and forth. Yeah. I mean, they're rivals for a reason. And yeah. it's what we really are going to delve into like. The fighting, the tensions, the altercations, the... Some of that, we'll get to that later, is finally yeah. going to start <laughs> coming to fruition. It's, it's here! <laughs> um, but in the meantime, for this episode, we are going to post some pictures of some of the important players in 
these rival gangs. So you should check it out on social media. Yes, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at a tap on the wrist. And then you can also email us if you have any fun facts about Chicago or about the beer wars or Al Capone um, or, you know, any drink recipes, anything you really want to yeah. exchange had, with us. If you had a signature cocktail at Thanksgiving, yeah. let us know. Yeah, or if you're planning one for Christmas, got to start making those plans yeah. and you for know our I, menus. I feel like we never really shout out our Saturday thing. Oh, yes, you're right. But on Instagram every Saturday Vanessa and I post a um, history nightcap and we usually highlight like a cocktail and we tell like the backstory of it sometimes mm -hmm. you do a bar or a person but we always give a recipe for a cocktail so make sure you check those out too definitely follow us on Instagram yes and email us also if you make any of those cocktails because that would be cool to like see people's results. We should start making them. We haven't made all of them. We've made some of them. No. Um, but our email address is tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. So please let us know because that would be really cool to be able to we can post some in our stories if you give us permission. Some finished product cocktails. Yeah. Now um, I want everyone to make all the cocktails. I know. Now I want to see pictures of people's cocktails. But definitely check, like Laura said, check us out on our social media platforms as well. Um, feel free to tweet us too or tag us in an Insta story. Uh, you don't only have to email us, even though we love getting emails. Yes. And as always, find us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. Yeah. It's the best way to help us. We appreciate it oh so much. We really do. And if you do rate, review, and subscribe, you can just shoot us a message on Instagram or by email and let us know. We'll send you some stickers. Sticker swag. Yes. And a nice card, because I know Laura can't just send an envelope of stickers. She's nope. going to need to send you a card. It's my love language. <laughs> so, so uh, until next week. Cheers. Cheers.